Chapter Nine of An American Politician. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. An American Politician by F. Marion Crawford. Chapter Nine. Josephine Thorne never read newspapers partly because she did not care for the style of literature known as journalistic, and partly, too, because the papers always came at such exceedingly inconvenient hours. If she had possessed and practiced the estimable habit of keeping up with the times, she would have observed an article which appeared on the morning after the skating party, and which dealt with the speech John Harrington had made in the music-hall two days previous. Miss Schenectady had read it, but she did not mention it to Joe, because she believed in John Harrington, and wished Joe to do likewise, wherefore she avoided the subject, for the article treated him roughly. Nevertheless, some unknown person sent Joe a copy of the paper through the post some days later, with a bright red pencil mark at the place, and Joe, seeing what the subject was, reading it with avidity. As she read, her cheeks flushed, her small mouth closed like a vice, and she stamped her little foot upon the floor. It was evident that the writer was greatly incensed at the views expressed by John, and he wrote with an ease and a virulence which proclaimed a practiced hand. The spectacle of an accomplished Democrat, said the paper, is always sufficiently unusual to attract attention, but to find so rare a bird among ourselves is indeed a novel delight. The orator who alternately enthralled and insulted a considerable audience at the music hall two nights ago laid a decided claim both to accomplishment and to democracy. He himself informed his hearers that he was a Democrat, and, indeed, it was necessary that he should state his position, for it would have been impossible to decide from the tone and quality of his opinions whether he were a socialist, a reformer, a conservative, or an Irishman. Perchance he has discovered the talisman by which it is possible for a man to be all four, and yet to be a man. Furthermore, he claims to be an orator. No one could listen to the manifold intonations of his voice, or witness the declamatory evolutions of his body, without feeling an inward conviction that the gentleman on the platform intended to present himself to us as an orator. Lest we be accused of partiality and prejudice, we will at once state that we believe it possible for a man to be singular in his manner, and quaint in his mode of phrasing, and yet to utter an opinion in some one direction which, if neither novel nor interesting, nor even tenable, shall yet have the one redeeming merit of representing a conceivable point of view. But when a man begins by stating that he belongs to the Democrats, and then claims as his own the views of his political opponents, winding up by demanding the sympathy and support of a third party, the obvious conclusion is that he is either a lunatic 
a charlatan or both a man cannot serve god and mammon neither can any man serve both the irish and the chinese mr john harrington has made a great discovery he has discovered that we require a civil service this is apparently the ground on which he states himself to be a democrat if we remember rightly the civil service convention which sat in discussion of the subject in the summer of eighteen eighty one was presided over by a prominent member of the republican party as some time has elapsed since then and the gentlemen connected with the movement are as active and as much interested in it as ever our orator will pardon us for questioning his right of discovery on the one hand and his claim to be considered a democrat on the strength of it on the other a civil service is doubtless a good thing even a very good thing and in due time we shall certainly have it but that the constitution of the united states is on the verge of dissolution at the hands of our corrupt public officers that our finance is only another name for imminent bankruptcy or that the new millennium of washington morals will be organized by mr john harrington these things we deny in toto from beginning to end so wide and deep is our scepticism that we even doubt whether war famine revolution or all three together would have instantly ensued if mr john harrington had not delivered his speech on wednesday evening in illustration or rather in futile attempt to illustrate mr harrington put forth a series of similes that should make any dead orator turn in his grave the nation was successively held up to our admiration in the guise of a sick man a cripple a banker a theatrical company and a peddler of tape and buttons we were bankrupt diseased and our bones like those of the psalmist were all out of joint and if our hearts did not become like melting wax in the midst of our bodies it was not the fault of mr john harrington but rather was it due to the hardening of those organs against the voice of the charmer the navigation act called down the choicest of the orator's vessels of wrath fools had made it worse than fools submitted to it and the reason why the salem docks were no longer crowded with the shipping of the peabody family was that there were ferry-boats in boston harbor a train of reasoning that must be clear to the mind of the merest schoolboy mr harrington further stated that these same ferry-boats not to mention certain articles he terms mud-scows with which we have no acquaintance are built of old timber copper and nails obtained by breaking tip the fleets of the peabody family which is manifestly a fraud on the nation and as far as the ferry-boats are concerned we believe we are in a position to state that they are not built of old material as regards the aforesaid mud-scows we can give no opinion not having before heard of the article which we presume is not common in commerce and may therefore be regarded as an exception to the universal rule 
that things in general should not be made of old timber, copper, and rusty nails. We will not weary our readers with any further attempt at unraveling the opinions, illustrations, and rhetoric of Mr. John Harrington, Democrat and orator. The possession of an abundant vocabulary, without any especial use for it in the shape of an idea, will not revolutionize modern government, whatever may be the opinion of the individual so richly gifted nor will any accomplished democrat find a true key to success in following a course of politics which consists in one half of the world trying to drive paradoxes down the throat of the other half it will not do and mr harrington will find it out he will find out also that the difference which exists between the republican and the democratic parties are far deeper and wider than he suspects and do not consist in such things as the existence or non-existence of a civil service, free trade, or mutzgaus. And when these things are forever crushed out of his imagination, it will be time enough to give him a name, seeing he is neither Republican nor Democrat, nor Tammany, nor even a stalwart, nor a three-hundred-and-sixer, seeing, in fact, that he is not an astronomical point in any political heaven with which the world is acquainted, but only the most nebulous of nebulae which have yet come within our observation. Joe read the article rapidly, and then read the last paragraph again, and threw the paper aside. She sat by the fire after breakfast and Miss Schenectady had come into the room several times and had gone out again, busied with much housekeeping. For Miss Schenectady belonged to the elder school of Boston women, who see to things themselves in the intervals of literature, gossip, and transcendental philosophy. But Joe sat still for nearly half an hour after she had done reading, and nursed her wrath while she toasted her little feet at the fire. At last she made up her mind and rose. "'I am going to see Sybil, Aunt Zoe,' she said, meeting the old lady at the door. "'Well, if she is up at this time of day,' answered Miss Schenectady. "'Oh, I fancy so,' said Joe. Mrs. Sam Wenham's establishment was of the modern kind, and nobody was expected to attend an early breakfast of fish, beefsteaks, buckwheat cakes, hot rolls, tea, coffee, and chocolate at eight o'clock in the morning. Visitors did as they pleased, and so did Mrs. Sam, and they met at luncheon, a meal which Sam Wenham himself was, of course, unable to attend. Joe knew this, and knew she was certain to find Sybil alone. It was Sybil she wanted to see, and not Mrs. Wenham. But as she walked down Beacon Street, the aspect of affairs changed in her mind. Joe had not exaggerated when she said to Vancouver that she had a very good memory, and it would have been better for him if he had remembered the fact. Joe had not forgotten the conversation with him in the evening after Harrington's speech, and in reading the article that had been sent to her, she instantly recognized a phrase word for word as Vancouver had uttered it. 
In speaking to her, he had said that politics consisted in one half of the world trying to drive paradoxes down the throats of the other half. It was true that in the article John Harrington was warned that he would discover the fallacy of this proposition, but in Joe's judgment this did not constitute an objection. Vancouver had written the article, and none other. Vancouver, who professed a boundless respect for John, and who constantly asserted that he took no active part whatever in politics. It was inconceivable that the coincidence of language should be an accident. Vancouver had made the phrase when making conversation, and had used it in his article. Joe was absolutely certain of that, and being full of her discovery and of wrath, she was determined to consult with her dearest friend as to the best way of revenging the offense on its author. But as she walked down Beacon Street, she reflected on the situation. She was sure Sybil would not understand why she cared so much, and Sybil would form hasty ideas as to the interest Joe took in Harrington. That would never do. It would be better to speak to Mrs. Sam Wyndham, who was herself so fond of John that she would seize with avidity on the information, from whatever source it came. But then Mrs. Wyndham was fond of Vancouver also. No, she was not. When Joe thought of it, she was sure that though Vancouver was devoted to Mrs. Sam, Mrs. Sam did not care for him, excepting as an agreeable person of even temper who was useful in society. But for Harrington she had a real friendship. If it came to the doing of a service, Mrs. Wyndham would do it. Joe's perceptions were wonderfully clear and just. But when she reached the house she was still uncertain, and she passed on, intending to turn back and go in as soon as she had made up her mind. In spite of all that, she could argue to herself it seemed unsafe, unwise at least. Sybil might laugh at her, after all. Mrs. Wyndham might possibly tell Vancouver instead of telling John. It would be better to tell John herself. She remembered having once spoken to him about Vancouver, and she could easily remind him of that conversation. She would probably see him that evening at a party she was going to. And yet it was so hard to have to keep it all to herself for so many hours instead of telling. Nevertheless, she would go and see Sybil, taking care, of course, to say nothing about the article. At the time Joe was walking up and down Beacon Street in the effort to come to a decision, John Harrington found himself face to face with a very much more formidable problem. He stood before the fireplace in his rooms in Charles Street, with an extinguished cigar between his teeth, his face paler than usual, and a look of uncertainty on his features that was oddly out of keeping with his usual mood. He wore an ancient shooting coat, and his feet were trussed into a pair of dingy leather slippers. His hands were in his pockets, and he was staring vacantly at the clock. On the oak writing-table that filled the middle of the room lay an open telegram. It was dated from Washington, and conveyed the simple information that Senator Caleb Jenkins had died at five o'clock that morning. 
It was signed by an abbreviation that meant nothing except to John himself. The name of the senator was itself fictitious, and stood for another which John knew. The table was covered with government reports, for when the message came John was busy studying a financial point of importance to him. The telegram had lain on the table for half an hour, and John still stood before the fireplace, staring at the clock. The senator had not been expected to live. In fact, it was remarkable that he should have lived so long. But when a man has been preparing for a struggle during many months, he is apt to feel that the actual moment of the battle is indefinitely far off. But now the senator was dead, and John meant to stand in his place. The battle was begun. No one who has not seen some of the inside workings of political life can have any idea of what a man feels who is about to stand as a candidate in an election for the first time in his life. For months, perhaps for years, he has been engaged with political matters. His opinions have been formed by himself or by others into a very definite shape. It may be that, like Harrington, he has frequently spoken to large audiences with more or less success. He may have written pamphlets and volumes upon questions of the day, and his writings may have roused the fiercest criticism and the most loyal support. All this he may have done, and done it well, but when the actual moment arrives for him to stand up upon his feet and address his constituents, no longer for the purpose of making them believe in his opinions, but in order to make them believe in himself, he is more than mortal if he does not feel something very unpleasantly resembling fear. It is one thing to express the truth. It is another to set oneself upon a pedestal and declare that one represents it, and is in one's own person the living truth itself. John was too honest and true a man not to feel a positive reluctance to singing his own praises. And yet that is what most electioneering consists in. But to be elected a senator in Massachusetts is a complicated affair. A man who intends to succeed in such an enterprise must not let the grass grow under his feet. In a few hours the whole machinery of election must be at work, and before night he would have to receive all sorts and conditions of men and electioneering agents. The morning papers did not contain any notice of the senator's death, as they had already gone to press when the news reached them if, indeed, it was as yet public property. But other papers appeared at midday, and by that time the circumstances would undoubtedly be known. John struck a match and relit his cigar. The moment of hesitation was over. The last breathing space before the fight, and all his activity returned. Half an hour later he went out with a number of written telegrams in his hand, and proceeded to the central telegraph office. The case was urgent. In the first place, the governor of the state would, according to law and custom, immediately appoint a senator pro tempore 
to act until the legislature should elect the new senator in place of the one deceased. Secondly, the legislature, which meets once a year, was already in session, and the election would therefore take place immediately, unless some unusual delay were created, and this was improbable. In spite of the article which had so outraged Josephine Thorne's sense of justice, there were many who believed in John Harrington as the prophet of the new faith, as the senator of reform, and the orator of the future, and his friends were numerous and powerful, both in the electing body and among the non-official mass of prominent persons who make up the aggregate of public opinion. It had long been known that John Harrington would be brought forward at the next vacancy, which, in the ordinary course of things, would have occurred in about a year's time, at the expiration of the senior senator's term of office, but which had now been suddenly caused by the death of his colleague. John was therefore aware that his success must depend, almost immediately, upon the present existing opinion of him that prevailed, and as he made his way through the crowded streets to the telegraph office, he realized that no effort of his own would be likely to make a change in that opinion at such short notice. At first it had seemed to him as though he were on a sudden brought face to face with the body of men whom he must persuade to elect him as their representative, and in spite of his great familiarity with political proceedings, the idea was extremely disagreeable to him but on more mature reflection it was clear to him that he was in the hands of his friends, that he had said his say and had done all he would now be able to do in the way of public speaking or public writing, and that his only possible sphere of present action lay in exerting such personal influence as he possessed. John Harrington was ambitious, or, to speak more accurately, he was wholly ruled by a dominant aspiration. He was convinced by his own study and observation, as well as by a considerable amount of personal experience, that great reforms were becoming necessary in the government of the country, and he was equally sure that a man was needed who should be willing to make any sacrifice for the sake of creating a party to inaugurate such changes. In his opinion, the surest step towards obtaining influence in the affairs of the country was a seat in the Senate, and with an unhesitating belief in the truth and honesty of the principles he desired to make known, he devoted every energy he possessed to the attainment of his object. To him government seemed the most important function of society, the largest, the broadest, and the noblest. To help, if possible, to be a leader in the establishment of what was good for the country, and to be the very foremost in destroying that which was bad, were, in his view, the best objects and aims for a strong man to follow. And John Harrington knew himself to be strong, and believed himself to be right, and thus armed he was prepared for any struggle. 
the quality of vanity exists in all men not least in those whose chief profession is modesty and seeing that it is a universal element created and inherent in every one it is impossible to say it is bad in itself for it is impossible to conceive any human creature without it a recent philosopher of reputation has taught that by vanity by the desire to appear attractive to the other sex man has changed his own person from the form of a beast to the image of god vanity is a mighty power and incentive as great as hunger and thirst and much more generally active in the affairs of civilized humanity and yet its very name means hollowness the hollowness of hollowness all things are hollowness said the preacher and his translators have put the word vanity in his mouth because it means the same thing but in itself being hollow it is neither bad nor good its badness or goodness lies in those things whereof a man makes choice to fill the void the inexpressible and indefinable craving within his soul as also hunger is only bad when it is satisfied by bad things or not satisfied at all so that in the one case it leads to disease and in the other to the committing of crimes in the desire for satisfaction many a poor fellow was hung by the neck in old times for stealing a loaf to stop his hunger and many a man of wit goes to the madhouse nowadays because the void of his vanity is unfilled but vanity is called by yet another name when its disagreeable side is hidden and when its emptiness has come to crave for great things it is pride the honorable pride then ambition and perhaps at last it is called heroic sacrifice vanity is an unsatisfied desire hollow in itself but capable of holding both bad and good it is not identical with self-complacency nor yet with conceit probably john harrington had originally possessed as much of this mysterious quality as most men who are conscious of strength and talent it had never manifested itself in small things and its very extent had made many things seem small which were of the highest importance to other men he had worked as a boy at all manner of studies like other boys but the idea of laboring in distasteful matters for the sake of being first among his companions seemed utterly absurd to him from the time he had begun to think for himself and he was young when he reached that stage he had formed a rooted determination to be first in his country to be a great reformer or a great patriot and he cared to study nothing that was not connected with this idea when his name was first heard in public life it was as the author of a pamphlet advocating certain sweeping measures of which no one else had ventured to dream as yet he would have smiled now had he taken the trouble to read again some of those earlier productions of his 
It had seemed so easy to move the world then, and it seemed so hard now. But nevertheless, he meant to move it, and as each year brought him increased strength and wider experience, it brought with it also the conviction of ultimate success. He had long forgotten to hope for the sudden and immediate power to stir the world, for he had discovered that it was a labor of years, the work of a lifetime. But if he had ever had any doubts as to the result of that work, he had forgotten them also. And now his strength, his aspirations, his vanity, and his intellect were roused together to the highest activity of which they were capable, the hour having come for which he had longed through half his lifetime, and though it was but the first trial in which he might fail, it had for him all the importance of the supreme crisis of his existence. No wonder that his face was pale and his lips set as he walked back from the telegraph office. As he walked down the hill by the railings of the common, he came upon Josephine Thorn, standing at the entrance of one of the boarded walks, as though hesitating whether to go in. He was close to her as he bowed, and something in her face made him stop. "'Good morning, Miss Thorne,' he said. She nodded gravely and hesitated. He was about to go on, thinking she was in one of those moods which he called capricious. But she stopped him. "'Mr. Harrington, I want to speak to you.' she said quickly, seeing that her opportunity was on the point of slipping away. "'Yes,' said John, smiling faintly. "'Mr. Harrington, did you read that article about you the day after the skating party?' "'Yes,' said John. "'It was not complimentary, if I remember.' "'It was vile,' said Joe, the angry color rising in her temples again. "'It was abominable.' It was written by Mr. Vancouver. John started slightly. I think you must be mistaken, he said. No, I am not mistaken. There were things in it, word for word, as he said them to me just after the speech. I am perfectly sure. John looked very gravely at Joe, as though to be sure of her honesty. There was no mistaking the look in her eyes. "'Miss Thorne,' John said, "'Vancouver may have said those very things to someone else "'who wrote them and printed them. "'But in any case, I am exceedingly obliged to you for the information. "'You are not angry?' Joe began, already repenting. "'No, how could I be? It may be important. "'The junior senator for Massachusetts died this morning, "'and there may be an election at any moment.' I have not told anyone else, but it will be known everywhere in an hour's time. Good-bye, and many thanks. You will be senator, of course, said Joe, in great excitement. I cannot tell, John answered. Are you going down the hill? No, thanks. I am going home, said Joe. Good-bye. End of chapter 9